your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Oh, I just love that. Ding! It's so perfect for this podcast, Your Positive Imprint. Thank you, Chris Noel, for composing Gumbalaya. I am Catherine Crazewater, your host of Your Positive Imprint. For this podcast, I interview people all over the world whose positive achievements are inspiring positive actions. Today's guest is Dirk Wales. Dirk Wales has been leaving his positive imprints around the world for many years. He is the author of novels, how-to books, and children's books, and he also found a niche in movie making through his Rainbow Film Productions. Rainbow Productions produced more than 70 films in the area of the medical field, as well as children's animated films and other genre of film. Dirk says that reading books opened up a whole new world for him. And I certainly understand that as I love reading books and magazines and I love listening to audiobooks as I clean the house. Well, one of the inspiring books for Dirk was by Jack London, Call of the Wild. Dirk believes everybody is supposed to get out there and do something and make something happen that is good. He wants to inspire you to develop a habit that you're going to do something for yourself that will re-inspire your passion. For him, he has been inspiring others through storytelling with print as well as film. At the end of today's episode, I will announce the winner of today's prize, Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.? Hello, I am in Santa Fe, New Mexico with an absolute wonderfully interesting person. His name is Dirk Wales. I am in awe of what I am staring at right now. He is an artist of every genre you can come up with and or or every media you can come up with and he's got pictures and artwork and he's got novels around his room. This is just an amazing place to just come in and not just learn about Dirk, but actually look at the past as well as the present because he is still inspiring people all over the world with his positive imprint. Dirk, I am thrilled to be here. Well, thank you very much, Catherine. <clears throat> it's an honor to uh, to be here with you and have you here and have you in the middle of my uh, living room <laughs> art gallery. And uh, I think that uh, I should probably say that one of the most deepest and important inspirations of my life uh, was I was a theater student at the uh, at UCLA, the University of California, which is an amazing place in Los Angeles. The theater department was started five years before I got there by um, two men, one of whom neither of whom was ever a university professor or had any kind of certification, but they went to the regents of the University of California, Kenneth McGowan, who was uh, Eugene O'Neill's producer at the Provincetown Playhouse on the East Coast, and another man who was a theater director, an amazing guy, Ralph Frude, and they went to the regents and said, we want to start a theater department. Well, the regents at that time weren't needing university degrees and certificates and all that nonsense. Oh, that's interesting. They were just professional people who had an idea. They opened the theater department at UCLA, and five years later, <clears throat> I was a theater student there, and this is where I got the beginnings of the wonder of my own education. 
I got to be an actor in plays. I got to light sets. I learned how to build sets. I designed sets, built them, lit them. I wrote four plays, one act plays, all four of which were produced in the student one act play theater that was right there on campus. Uh, they Do you remember won... any of those plays? What... Yes. And uh, in addition to that, they had a, a directing course. By the way, there was no book about how to direct anything or produce anything. Each director, there were nine directors each semester, eight directors, I'm sorry, each semester. That means we're doing 16 plays a year in the student playhouse and I won the Best Director's Award for the two plays that I did. Well, congratulations. So, uh, <laughs> one of the things that helped me get through college uh, from uh, 1950 to 1954, and I was an ROTC graduate student, which means that I took two years of advanced ROTC at UCLA, and at the end of that I was required to go into the army for two years as a lieutenant. And I did my basic officer's infantry training and I became the platoon leader uh, in Munich, Germany, in an infantry unit, an armored infantry unit, that, guarding the Czechoslovakian border against five divisions of Russian tanks that everybody thought was gonna come across the border and take over Germany. Well. What we found out years and years later is that the Russians weren't going to do that. They didn't want to. The Russians didn't want to your country. They just didn't want you in their country at that time. This is a long time ago. And so uh, I was the platoon leader of, and I had five sergeants, all of whom were combat veterans, all of whom were old enough to be either my father or my big brother, and they all knew twice as much about what we were doing as I did. I made them understand that I knew that until they finally came to understand and believe that. And so we made all of the command decisions collaboratively together. So we made good decisions and we became one of the best platoons in the company, of the battalion. And everything was fine because they knew what to do, and I was willing to go along with that and be with them. Well, that was a really interesting, the two years in the Army was a very interesting educational experience for me. And it helped me enormously to, to uh, know how to live a life that's productive and uh, collaborative. Well, and you're living it well. You are living it well. Thank you. I got this amazing foundation education, which has served me every day of my life. Because now, uh, as you know, uh, I have written two novels, three actually. One manuscript has been lost. And I am a best-selling children's book author with my book, A Lucky Dog, about the dog, Oni, who lived in the Albany, New York post office, for nine years in the 1890s and traveled all over the United States by himself on mail trains. Yes, this is a true story. Five years ago, the dog was a United States postage stamp. So I write children's books. I have two novels. One is The Fall and Rise of Landon Harris about the ups and downs of a New York novelist. And uh, the second one, which is also done very well, is called The Last Chapter is Missing, 
and at the end of the book, there are two last chapters. <laughs> so um, I belong to the uh, New Mexico uh, Book Association, and one day the guy who does the, uh, the newsletter every month wanted to interview me. He wanted to come here and sit where you're sitting, and he wanted to interview me to do an article for the front page of his journal. And the night before, I realized that his last question was going to be, how many books have you written, Dirk? So I sat down at my, I still call it a typewriter, it's a computer. I sat down at my computer and I wrote, to my own surprise, two pages of titles of plays, film scripts, movie scripts, and all the books, 21. And nobody was more surprised than me. <laughs> so um, that's where we are today. I have just finished my fourth novel called A Walk on the Beach. A man decides he needs a little time to figure out his life and where he and it are going. He takes a leave of absence from his job gets his sister to drop him off on the California beach at the Mexican border, and he will walk the California beach from the Mexican border to Oregon. Now, that's 983 yeah. miles. It's a long way. And when did this, when does it take place? In the modern day. Modern day. Okay. Yes, it's a modern day kind of thing. He starts, he has some insights in Laguna Beach, which is one of my favorite places of all time. Well, I grew up on the California beach, so I know where everything is. Uh, he visits the Glass Chapel, and I can't find anybody these days who knows what the Glass Chapel is. It's a glass church built on the high ground, the uh, overlooking Long Beach Harbor in California. It's an entire church built of glass by the Wrights, the Frank Lloyd Wright family. Okay. And it's an amazing place. So he went there and, and then he goes up and he meet, to, meets a nice girl, lady, at, on Broad Beach Road in Malibu, spends some time with her, and she decides she wants to walk the Big Sur with him. So they go up and visit the mission in Santa Barbara, which is this beautiful, one of the 21 missions, and then go up to Morro Bay and do the walk of the Big Sur from Morro Bay to uh, Carmel. When they get to Carmel, they decide they learned all they need to learn. Now they go back and start their brand new lives. That's interesting. So is the Glass Chapel still standing? Oh, yeah. Wow. It's been there for a long time. The book won an award at the Los Angeles Book Festival. And I'm sure that one of you out there is wanting to publish my book. <laughs> Give me a call because I have this book award, but I don't have a publisher yet. And uh, I'm working on the next book, actually, which I just finished. Oh, Mike, you are very busy. now. Well, I'm obsessed. Well, and, and you are you're obsessed with something that inspires you, but it also inspires others. Obviously. Well, what I'm hoping so, yeah. is that this new 32-page illustrated book that I've just finished, which I call Storytelling and Inspiration, How to Create a Children's Book. Now, 
What's important about this is you can go on the internet and find all kinds of sites, how to write a children's book, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and then how to illustrate a children's book, oh my. Uh, but this is a book that's talking about the creation of the idea and what you're going to do in that creation and you know get you started on writing the book so that we have we're not trying to point you in any direction but get dig into your mind for inspiration to tell a story there you go well now <clears throat> are do you can i ask you if you want to say how old you are <laughs> does that mean anything does that matter no, but you have, you don't need to say it, but you... I'm 87 years old. That's what's incredible, all, is you're still doing all this at 87. And all of you who want to send me a birthday card, please do. <laughs> I'll be 88 on the May 17th this year, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I'm going to find a publisher for this book I've That'll just told you about. That'll be a great birthday about. present. And I have The Walk on the Beach, and I'm starting to write... I'm actually 25 pages into the next novel. See, that this is just being the age you are and still doing what you're doing is quite an inspiration for many, many other people who don't know, well, should I really sit down and try to do something new or even try to think about what I wanted to do at one time? Because really, people sometimes feel that they're so committed to something else that they don't want to do what they really want to do. And, well, and I think we probably have a country full of people who not only are committed to something else, but they have to do it. I mean, the culture of our country isn't in too good shape right now. Yeah. And so there's a lot of people who are struggling to get along, and I know about them. And uh, But what we're really talking about is developing a habit within yourself that you're going to do something for yourself. Those are very important words. Because everybody thinks they don't have any time to do anything but go to work and uh, take care of the family and do all those things that are all what we should be doing. I've done that, I understand that. But you can carve out some time for yourself uh, good idea is to get up an extra hour in the morning, go into a quiet room and write your story. Or uh, you work at a job, so you have a, there's a quiet place in your offices where you are that you could go and take a sack lunch and make some notes for your story or write some pages for your story. Or you could do it when you come home after dinner. But there, it's, it's a matter of discipline and it's a matter of needing to do it so bad. And by the way, it will re-inspire you. Those are very profound words. Thank you for sharing that. Well, you want to, you know, there are things that everybody wants to do, but they find reasons or things that they're not supposed to be doing that, they're supposed to be doing something else. But the fact of the matter is, that your own growth and development and meaning in your own life is doing some things you want to do. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to do that in my life, and I can't tell you how grateful I am. Well, you, it's great that you are, and thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. We all appreciate those words. Well, I am, 
you handed me this book, and I want to hear something of what you have to say about Jack London's dog. But before you do, I, I want to tell you real quick my little background. Uh, my parents raised us in the outdoors. My dad always told stories about Jack London, or not about, but he retold Jack London stories mm -hmm. to us. And there are so many that, that really inspired me growing up, just mm -hmm. you know, with the outdoors mm -hmm. attitude and mm -hmm. the caring and so on. And then when I grew up, I became a script supervisor for films for a while, and my script supervisor trainer lived in Jack London's home in Hollywood. And so that's where I stayed and learned my field of script supervising was mm -hmm. in Jack London's home. So this is, so anyway, that's, let's hear from you about Jack London's dog. Okay, now as a kid, my parents not only didn't give me books or read to me or encourage reading, they weren't that kind of folks. They were good people, but they weren't very literary or thoughtful about that. So essentially, I never started reading until I was in my early 30s traveling to New York City every week from where I lived in Cincinnati, Ohio to produce television commercials. And I went to New York starting in 1962 and found, what did I find? Bookstores. <laughs> now, Remember, we're talking about a long time ago, so if I grew up in Los Angeles in the 40s, 50s, there, there were no art galleries, there were no museums, and bookstores weren't anything, I mean, there were probably some, but I, I, my parents never took me there and they never gave me books. So when I first began coming to New York City, my life is transformed immediately. I'm a graduate of the theater school at UCLA, so now I can go to the theater on 45th and 46th Street, 44th, 45th and 46th Street, <laughs> by the, for seven, the seven or eight or nine years that I worked every week in New York, uh, by the end of May, I'd seen all the plays that had opened in New York. So I got into all of that, and then I had begun reading. Now, I didn't find Jack London until late. The schools that I went to didn't encourage reading. I never heard, uh, I mean, I'd heard of him, but I didn't really go until I finally, years and years later, I was in San Francisco, and I went to a bookstore and bought a copy of Call the Wild, and this book changed everything for me. I had never read anything so powerful, so deeply meaningful, and the whole thing was just amazing. And uh, yes, I've read some of his other works, and I visited his house in, in uh, Northern California and all that. But... You would ask, well, how come you started to write Jack London's Dog? And the honest answer is, I don't really remember other than I was so inspired by London. And then I found out, oh, I know what it was. I had a, I, I found a picture once uh, at the, uh, the big museum in Pasadena uh, that had a lot of London's work. And there's a picture of a bunch of men in the gold country in 1897 in the Yukon and sitting with one of them as a dog. What's a dog doing there? 
Then I began to search around and I discovered that London was there, lived on Split Up Island in the middle of the Dawson, uh, is it the Dawson River? I'm not sure. It's the city of Dawson, maybe not, I don't know what the river, I'm forgetting things. But the dog and the man were friends. London gets sick and has to go back to Oakland. He begins writing Call the Wild, but what happens to the dog? So I begin writing about the two of them together doing all kinds of things on Split Up Island in the Gold Country. London goes back and he begins to write Call the Wild. So I invent the idea that the dog, who is the inspiration for Buck, becomes avalanche dog in the North Country and begins saving people from avalanches. I have an avalanche consultant in Billings, Montana. I write three or four pages. I send them to him. And he says, you know, Dirk, you're pretty good for somebody who's never been in an avalanche. You just need to change this and fix this and this, and it'll be just fine. So we have Jack London's dog about London and the dog in the North Country. London goes back and begins to write Call the Wild, and I do little inner takes, drop into the book until London finishes the book. It's Call the Wild. He becomes a legendary person, and here's Zach London's dog, and I've got the book. That's now, did I tell your recording how the book got me to Jack London's club? Uh, let's see, Jack, no, and tell me about Jack London's club. Let's hear okay, about this. Okay, uh, the, now, when the book comes out in September... My publisher gets a call from Barnes & Noble on Jack London Square in Oakland. Well, uh, we give a party here at Jack London Square every January for Jack London at Barnes & Noble, and we'd like Mr. Wales to come and be the speaker at the birthday party. Oh. So, okay, fine. I go. There's this hall full of people. And uh, I give the talk to them. We sell a couple of cases of books. Everything's fine. But at the end of the talk, a man sitting in the front row of the audience stands up, shakes my hand, and says, <laughs> Hi, I'm Al Levinson, president of the California Writers Club, and we want you to become a member of our club. So starting then, I have been the only member of the California Writers Club in Berkeley who doesn't live in California I go to their events. I do things with them. I've been in book fairs that they've had in Oakland. Had a marvelous time. Made some wonderful friends. So it's been a real, I mean, what I've discovered is that writing these books have widened and broadened my world. Well, and look at what you did for the Jack London's Club and the place in Berkeley. The positive imprints that you... Well, we, it's important to do things for people. It is. And uh, I, have, uh, I have done that. Uh, and now you go back every year for Jack London's birthday. Yeah, well, no. Uh, I go back now and then when they have events and one thing or another. Okay. By the way, we haven't talked about the giraffe. I was just going to ask that because that's what... How did I know that? You're not holding up any cue cards. Well, because this is all natural. I don't provide questions in advance. It is conversation so oh I see we're having a talk we're having a talk is that what they call a dialogue on the play <laughs>
<laughs> I used to write dialogue. Yes. So this story, and I was looking at the drafts that you have about here, and I'm guessing that um, some of the drafts remind you of the book. But So tell us about that story. Okay, there's a novel. No, it's not a novel. It's a nonfiction book called Zarafa. And it's about the period in history when there's this big dispute between the Sultan of Egypt and the King of France about all the land in between. And I thought it was a really interesting, thick book. I had a lady friend at the time, and I told her about this, and she was one of my inspirations. She's a wonderful person. While she was here visiting once, I took three pages out of the middle of the book about when the giraffe walks from Marseille in Paris to Paris, from Marseille in France, I'm sorry, to Paris. I forget how long the walk is, but the first director of the Paris Zoo, Geoffrey Saint-Hilier, comes from Paris to Marseille to walk the first giraffe ever in France, second giraffe ever in Europe, to across France to Paris to present him to the King of France and have the first giraffe in the Paris Zoo. And so I take these three pages and I do a lot of research. Actually, my first idea is to fly to Marseille, rent a car, and drive the route the giraffe drove, rode, walked, and I realized, well, how the hell am I going to afford that? And it's going to take months. So I just sunk myself into the idea of it and wrote the story. And a friend found this wonderful artist, Bridget, who had never illustrated a children's book. And she did it. And we have this wonderful book that's in its uh, third edition and doing just fine. I mean, imagine first giraffe ever in your country, walking down the main street of your house with a bunch of people. <laughs> I mean, it's astounding. And it's a wonderful story, and I like wonderful stories. And, and what's the title of your book? The Giraffe Who Walked to Paris. Mm -hmm. And that is one that is used in classrooms. Hmm? It's used in the classrooms. It is? I didn't it know is. that. Sure. How come you know all this stuff? You know more than I do. You've been around a lot longer and you're much wiser. <laughs> you mean you're not 86 years old and we're not going to go out and have dinner together tonight? <laughs> oh, you're funny. <laughs> so I'm enjoying this conversation. And maybe, uh, should I ask, I'm talking to you, the audience now, should I ask her how old she is? <laughs> so, now we move on. Oh, we're moving on. We're moving on. Okay. <laughs> So you have this novel. It's a fairly new novel that's come out. It's The Fall and Rise of Landon Harris. So and it's, it is a little bit different from some of your other writings. So tell me about this story and any fun tidbit. Well, uh, one of the basis of this is that, as I've told you, starting in 1962, for nine years I went to New York to produced television commercials. Then I opened my film company and I went to New York to make other kinds of films. And I know New York really well. Uh, I mean, we're talking about everything from Hell's Kitchen and 
Greenwich Village before it became this incredible big place when it was just a nice small place with a, a really good movie house and some wonderful places to eat and, and just walk around. I love New York and I'm really, really inspired by New York. And I, it occurred to me that there would be a novelist who would, who would write books and his muse would be his wife, and then she dies, and he doesn't know what to do. So he writes, he's a, he's a, uh, a best-selling novelist, but his wife dies and his muse, and he writes a so-so book, which isn't, you know, doesn't do everything, and suddenly he's lost literally lost. He, his book comes out, nobody wants it. His wife has died, all these kind of things. And he meets this woman who actually lives in uh, the southern, uh, in, in one of the harbor towns in southern Connecticut. And they become friends and lovers and all those kind of things. And she tries to help him get back to his writing. And over a period of time, through going through a whole bunch of situations, it's really a deep investigation of all this, he finally gets inspired and he writes the novel. Now, this was, he, he has some problems, having a lot of difficulties and finally, he gets inspired by the woman. He, his father has a ranch in, uh, in the coastal mountains of California. And, and finally he figures it out. But his, the book that he finally writes uh, is about Shadow Angel. He's down in the village one time and he finds out about all the lost teenagers in Greenwich Village. <laughs> and he makes some notes. And so finally he writes the book, this is a different book called Love Scenes, and it has 10 love scenes. There's no beginning, there's no ending, there's just a love scene pulled out of the middle of a novel that was never written. And uh, my favorites are the first one, which is Braille, about a man who's, who's walking on the beach in California, and the, a dog comes and said, barks at him and convinces him to follow him, and he goes up and finds the dog's mistress, you know, in harm's way in her isolated home on the California beach and he saves her and she takes him inside and teaches him how to make love in Braille. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> you have done a lot and I'm, I, I don't want to pry, but I'm staring at this picture that's down here and I noticed that it is a grave. Hmm. So is that a grave of a loved one of yours, or is this something that you're working on? What, what might well, this be? Well, um, this is uh, a rather long and complicated story that I'll try to make short for you. But when I first began coming to New Mexico from Chicago, uh, I had a friend, and we went up to the river 
north of Cuesta in this little town, the name of which I've forgotten, but it had this incredible uh, church, which I call a mission. That's only because I grew up in California where they have 21 missions. And right beside the mission was the graveyard, which is called in Spanish Camposano, Field of Spirits. And I took some pictures and I was just amazed at the pictures of the grave markers, which were so beautiful, the crosses, the flowers, the decorations, the written things. And finally, I decided I was gonna take a bunch more pictures, so I went back and took pictures in two of the Camposanos cemeteries. And I'd had shows of that work in art galleries, and then I had this thought of getting the picture of the person there, and I had, was friends with the guy who ran the graveyard at, to the, at the first one. And I, he died, and I got a picture of him and put it beside that. And then I went to the priest, the father, who was at the church, maybe in Cuesta, I'm not sure, and said, was this a terrible thing to do? And he said, no, he looked at all the grave markers, the pictures and everything, and he said, no, this is wonderful. You come Friday night to the service and I'll introduce you to my parishioners and they'll give you pictures. Of the family of- Of the, the families who are buried in the pictures you have, the grave marker pictures you have. And so I began to do that and I had a show here at the museum. I was in a show at the Museum of New Mexico and then got shows in other places, and then began to go and take more pictures and get more families pictures, and then tell the stories, and then I get this book together. And so I have a book now of, a grave, of these grave markers, the people buried there, and little bits of stories of their lives. Very, very different, but very meaningful, deep religious story about life and death they are very indicative of the Spanish culture and their reverence for death as well as life. Well, nice we need piece. to respect death as well as life. It's all joined together. And that's true. I, there's a, a, let's see, I, it was Captain Kirk <laughs> that said it in a movie. Uh, it was, I'm pretty sure it was Wrath of Khan. He said to Dr. McCoy, um, dealing with death is just as important as dealing with life. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, uh, there are some cultures that embrace that. And I think that the culture in our country of America doesn't embrace it that, as that much like they do. I mean... Uh, I was in the beginnings of taking these pictures in New Mexico, northern New Mexico, and I went to visit some wonderful graveyards in Chicago, and they're all gray stones. And I thought, this is really kind of interesting, how the different cultures, and I knew that I shouldn't say or do anything about that because that's not my business. Everybody practices life and death in the way that they feel they should, so okay. But it helped me complete the work that I've done in that area. Well, and uh, it's a lot of fun. 
Well, let's see if I can be nosy and find something else around here to ask you. I'm teasing. I won't do that. <laughs> well, I'm writing right now my new book, which is part two of a book I'm holding up to you now called Shadow Angel. Now, Shadow Angel is about a teenage runaway from Michigan who goes to New York City and has some up and down adventures in New York City, Manhattan, uh, until he opens his own teenage runaway center in an abandoned hotel on the lower west side of New York. Now, I went to New York to find this place uh, on the west side, three blocks from the river, in an abandoned hotel. The hotel is there. There's a big poster on the front saying, this hotel is closed by the city of New York. So my character in my book, Shadow Angel, the Teenage Runaway, gets his buddies to break in the back of the hotel, and they open it up and make it a hotel for runaway kids. And he thinks his job is to get his kids, he's 17 years old, for him and they to steal enough money so that he can take each one of them one at a time to Grand Central Station and buy them a train ticket to a safe home, not the one they ran away from. Wow. And so that this book, which is a thin book, is about that. And one day he's down getting one of his kids off at Grand Central Station and he's sitting beside a pretty girl in a blue dress. And she begins talking to him and chatting him up and sees that he's a nice kind of lost kid. He doesn't even know how to talk to her. They're both, she's still in high school, but he's run away. She drags him up. She, the, her train to Greenwich comes up and she drags him up and says, come on, I'm taking you up to Greenwich and introducing you to my folks and having dinner. I want them to meet you. Well, mom likes him a lot. Dad is wondering about this. But they become friends and do various things for one another until she decides she's going to move down and help him at his, at his kids center and stay with him. And so the last page of Shadow Angel is the story, is the letter that she writes home to her parents in Greenwich, Connecticut, saying why she's going to live down here with him and how she's going to help him protect his life and all that. Now, the new book starts with that letter. Dirk's positive imprints go beyond storytelling and into the world of filmmaking. He owns a production company, Rainbow Productions, in which he's produced many different films, some of which have helped the medical field in so many different ways. He's also started a website, getunhooked.net. This website provides information as well as help to those who are addicted or misusing prescription drugs. Take a listen. Uh, an important part of my life was that I had a film company in, that was Rainbow in Chicago. Rainbow Productions in Chicago, which I opened in 1972. We made children's animation. We made travel films for the Discovery Channel. We made museums for museums in Chicago and New York. And we worked for all the American multinational pharmaceutical companies, making educational training and instruction and sales films for, for doctors. And my specialty turned out to be 
anesthesia. We don't need to know anything about that, except that I made, I think, I may have made 60 films about anesthesia, and I learned a lot about it. I had some wonderful friends, uh, and it was really an exciting thing to do. We won a lot of film festival prizes, but I was friends with Dr. Tom Hornbein, who was the head of anesthesia at the University of Washington Medical Center in Seattle. By the way, Tom Hornbein was the first American to climb Mount Everest in oh. 1962 or really? 63. Oh my gosh. And he is an amazing man, and he and his wife and I are still friends today. But he called me up one day and he said, Dirk, I'm at my film company office. Dirk, we're having a real problem in anesthesia. In the last two years, 19 of our young anesthesia residents have killed themselves with an oh overdose gosh. of our own drugs. If we could figure out a way to stop or slow that down, it wouldn't matter what we did, how much it would cost. It's really important. So I said, fine, I'm game. What do you want to do? Well, he called and he found the 29-year-old widow of an anesthesia resident. And uh, I went to talk to her and asked her about what happened. And in three visits with her, two of the visits with my cameraman and my sound people and everything, we made a film about her story, the loss of her 29-year-old husband when he was a resident, and we made a film. Immediately, the film caught on, won film festival awards, but the start of it all was that Dr. Hornbein went to a meeting of doctors, their annual meeting, and he showed eight minutes of this film and got immediate financing of the whole thing. We made the film, we shipped all over the country, and we helped anesthesia people everywhere understand the dangers of this. And after that, in the years that followed, we made six more films. So there's a total of seven films called wearing masks that uh, are uh, are available uh, I think on the web I'm not really sure but because I'm I've already said I'm not a web person eventually I got the uh, National Media Award from the American Society of Addictive Medicine and went on to learn about America's biggest problem killing more people than automobile crashes misuse of prescription drugs so I now have a website called getunhooked.net that can prevent you, warn you about the dangers of this or if you're using how to get unhooked. There's all kinds of information on that website and uh, that's been very important because we have, I got the report recently and you'd be surprised at the thousands of people who are visiting to find out what they shouldn't do or if they're doing it how to get unhooked. That's remarkable. So, okay, so the day of the first film that you released on this subject was, do you remember what the... Uh, I believe it was uh, 1993. Oh, so it was, it was very recent. And then the last one was in the 1990s or the 2000s? In the 2000s. Oh my goodness, so these now are obviously, well I saw them, I found, you know, you can see, you can find them on the web, so they're in circulation. Mm -hmm. And so, and then your website, that's remarkable. 
oh my goodness, so it just took this phone call from a friend of yours and just a chit-chat, a conversation. Well, that... you know, a lot of things happened that way. I had this film company for 33 years and I would meet somebody or we would have lunch or I would meet somebody and we'd say, let's go have lunch and talk about it. Or people would call me or any number of amazing coincidental talks about something and then we make a film and then it gets out there and something happens and that's what everybody is supposed to do get out there and do something and make something happen we made some children's animation that was really a lot of fun uh the first animated film we made was a book by chris van alsberg i belong to an organization in chicago there were a lot of film librarians, and they wanted films uh, for their libraries that are good for kids. And so I said, well, what do you want to be made? I'll make it for you. And ultimately, we opened a company called Made to Order Library Productions. I had an advisory council of film librarians from San Diego to 54th Street in New York. But of course, nobody watches films anymore and everything is on the internet, so I don't actually know what happened. But we, we started making films for film libraries and the first one was Chris Van Allsburg's book, Ben's Dream. Mm -hmm. A boy falls asleep over his uh, history book and he dreams that his house in a rainstorm is lifted up and flooded and goes by all the great landmarks in the world that are in his history book. And he, the, the rain stops and his friend is pounding on the window. Hey, come on, we're going to go out and take a ride on our bikes. It's his girlfriend. He goes out and the last frame is, what was your dream about? And they go around the corner. <laughs> the, the book by Chris and this film is about the great landmarks in the world. And we're talking about the Statue of Liberty, the Eiffel Tower, the China Wall of China, and all kinds of things well, I think like that. it sounds that. like a great film. Well, it was a great book. I mean, Chris von Ellsberg's books were amazing. His most popular one was Polar Express. But my favorite is Ben's Dream and The Secret Notebooks of Harris Burdick. I love that book. Chris was amazing, and uh, uh, there were other people who were amazing who uh, inspired me. And I began writing children's books myself and having a good time. Well, remarkable. Well, Dirk, you are wonderful, and I've enjoyed this so much. And your inspirational words and your inspirational past and all of your positive imprints. And I know you don't see it that way. You see it as, hey, I love doing this. Well, it's important to, uh, to help people. And it's important to tell stories. People have been telling stories since the Greeks. It's important to help and it's important to tell stories and it's important to be creative. Well, I appreciate your creativeness and so does the rest of the world. And I look forward to reading more of your books and some of the ones that I have not read yet. Okay. Thank you so much. Wow. Well, thank you for joining me here at Your Positive Imprint. If you'd like more information regarding misuse of prescription drugs, you can go to Dirk's website, getonhooked.net. Music by Chris Knoll. And the winner of the Kindle edition of Dirk's book, The Rise and Fall of Landon Harris, is Andrew 
from Washington, D.C. Congratulations, Andrew. I will be in touch. Thank you. To learn more about this show and to sign up for email updates, which you will be included in for prize drawings, you may go to yourpositiveimprint.com. Please leave positive reviews. You can also follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. And I've also started a YouTube channel, again, Your Positive Imprint, where you can view sometimes a video and listen to audio clips before an episode or after an episode has launched. And please hit that subscribe button at your favorite podcast platform and leave positive reviews. Your Positive Imprint. What's your PI? Subscribe now.